Biz Buy Sell for the win. Today's guest, Jordan Novgrad, tried to get upstream on DealFlow. He scraped data, did broker outreach, iterated his methods, but wouldn't you know it, the $800,000 SDE business that he ultimately bought, he found right on BizBuySell, sitting out there publicly for all to see. Just goes to show that despite whatever sophisticated processes you develop for your search, always keep an eye on BizBuy, as some brokers call it. Something else I want to call out about Jordan's story that we don't hit directly until the very end. Acquisition entrepreneurship for Jordan is an escape from the middle class. It's hard. It's a risk. He sold his house to enable himself to do it. But he sees buying a small business as a uniquely powerful path to a level of wealth otherwise unattainable to most W-2'd people. And he has gone all in to walk that path. Here he is, Jordan Novgrad, owner of LT Engineering. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Wouldn't it be great to have experts at your back when buying a business? People to help you polish up your pitch and processes as you go to market as a searcher, then help you evaluate opportunities once you get some deal flow. Such experts exist, buy-side advisors, but they'll cost you to the tune of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. But another option exists, the Acquisition Lab. The lab is a do-it-with-you buy-side advisory service, not do-it-for-you. Founded by Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, the lab represents Walker's vision for what is most needed to make a searcher successful and available at an accessible price. It's cohort-based, and you will come out the other side of your cohort prepared to go to market as a savvy searcher with a tight message and process so brokers take you seriously, pre-approved for a loan, and with an entire community at your disposal to help you along the journey to buying a business. To learn more, check out acquisitionlab.com, link in the show notes. Jordan Novgrad, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. Jordan, I, I love when my guests don't fit the mold of the typical acqu acquisition entrepreneur. Uh, I would put you in that category. Uh, for two reasons, primarily. First, you were employed at the same place for 17 years, so uh, an almost two-decade stint as a single, as an employer at a single place is not really typical on the resume of an entrepreneur. And second, you were never really interested in personal finance, money, uh, and you only became interested in the topic about three years ago, introduced to it by uh, from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that famous book that has introduced so many to personal finance. And yet here you are having acquired a business. So um, not sure the Jordan of three years ago would recognize the Jordan of today, uh, but uh, we're going to we're going to hear all about what that journey looks like. So maybe start us off, Jordan, with, um, you know, these these 17 years what were you doing and what happened that prompted you to, I mean, beyond just reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, what go, how does somebody working for 17 years go to buying a business? So um, I guess 17 years was um, what I uh, fell into and I got the um, 
you know, um, salary and all that. The I, I gained enough that it became like the golden handcuffs. You couldn't easily walk away. And uh, while I wanted to start a business, uh, my wife was never supportive of being poor while we um, did a startup. So every time I tried, she would say, hey, wait a minute, that's not going to work for us. Um, How many times did you try? Um, a handful. Okay. A handful so, of times. So you, did, you were entrepreneurial, so it wasn't totally out of left field that you would eventually do something entrepreneurial. Right. Um, okay. You know, I, um, I feel like I've uh, always been entrepreneurial. I did uh, start a business in college that I totally ignored for college. Um, so it didn't last very long, but, you know, I do, um, my, my family, I guess, um, has always um, been entrepreneurial. Um, most, um, most everybody in my family start, had started or run a business. So, ah. you know, that was kind of normal for me. Uh, so finding myself at a job where I, um, stuck for 17 years was, was out of the norm for my family. Um, and you know, it basically got into, I was, I was working for the Johns Hopkins applied physics lab, um, and doing DOD work. So I was, you know, finding a lot of that stuff very interesting, um, having gotten engineering degrees, um, and one thing led to another and I just kept, you know, um, finding it hard to, to break out of that. Um, so then COVID happened and that changed everything. We decided to um, sell our house and, and move to a rental so that we could then have that money available to invest. Um, we decided that um, we wanted to get closer to my in-laws since they were getting older. Um, we did all that and then um, the COVID mandates started happening and I was totally against the mandates and um, applied for an exemption and all that. And lo long story short is it didn't work out. They, they um, very much um, had a draconian style, uh, you'll do what we want or you won't work here. So I knew I wasn't going to be working there for very long at that point. Um, I was ready to dive off and start uh, investing in self-storage. Um, but the economics of that aren't, aren't nearly, um, that of buying a business, um, that, um, you know, as a typical search. So Jordan, along let me that hop journey, in here. let me hop in here with a couple of questions. I just want to understand. So you read rich dad, poor dad, you guys sold your house to invest that money. What does that, what does that mean exactly to so, buy business so or I, to buy, I, get into self-storage or what? Okay, so um, yeah, it's we didn't have a lot of the way uh, a lot in the way of savings. Um, being a single income household in Maryland is is kind of tough. Um, mm -hmm. And my my wife homeschools our kids, um, so um, we just had my income. So we didn't have a lot in the way of savings. Well, one of the things we did have was a house that we had bought and and renovated. Um, so we did a lot of work on the house and we decided to pull the equity out of that and, and, and then rent so that we could use that money to invest. And it wasn't clear when we, when we made that decision, we didn't know exactly what we were going to invest in, but we knew we wanted to have, you know, cash flowing assets instead of 
um, just a liability. So we really took that rich dad philosophy of your house is not an asset um, to heart and ran with that. Yeah. And so is you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Sounds like your wife is on board with all this. So is she kind of also going on a personal finance journey alongside you or you're doing it together? Yeah. So um, it took me a while to convince her to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think maybe um, maybe six months before she finally did. And then she was totally on board with it, which is what enabled us to do it. Because if your wife isn't on board, you're not you're not going to be right. doing much. Right. Right. Behind every behind every good searcher, <laughs> there there's a supportive partner, um, and you. So I imagine, well, I, I know from our pre-call, you kind of go down the personal finance rabbit hole. So rich dad, poor dad leads, I assume, to all sorts of videos and personalities and stuff. But you arrive at sweaty startup. Nick Huber, who will be familiar to many people listening, uh, and Nick Huber's big thing is self storage. So you're 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 for a, your minute for a minute there. You're interested in self storage, correct? But you decided so expensive. Just expound on that just a little bit. Sure. So I had been listening to a lot of self storage podcasts and all that, trying to get um, educated. Um, so I understood the space, and in that, I found Nick, um, and I listened to the one podcast he had on um, buying a business. And I'd never thought that was a concept. I thought that's what rich people did, right? Um, yep. Never thought that you could go out um, and, you know, leverage a loan and get, uh, buy a cash flowing business. So when I discovered that, I was up all night on Biz Buy Sell going, oh my God, it's not, it's, it's true. There, there are actually these businesses. Yeah. Um, so I started, um, I, I told my wife about that and she said, that's a lot, a lot better idea than self-storage. She was on board with that. So, um, then, uh, at that point I, um, lost my job, um, or quit or both, um, and started full-time searching. So that was in January. That was in January of this year. Okay. January of this year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and you didn't like self-storage, not just because you feel like the category has become a little overheated with all the, the attention that Nick Huber and others are bringing to it, but also because it's just, I think you, you told me it just appeals to you less. And why was that? Well, so it's, I mean, you're not, you're, you're not really managing much in the way of people. You're mostly managing, you know, boxes and that's not very exciting, although, I still think there's value in self-storage investing. It's just long-term. Yeah. And, you know, my wife didn't like it because I said, well, we're going to pull in almost no salary for the first 10 years, but then we'll make money. And she didn't like she that didn't like idea. That. <laughs> <laughs> can't blame her. I can't. Yeah. Give me your educational background. Uh, you're an engineer, you had mentioned, but specifically... Could you be more specific? So I, I went to NC State, um, and I did uh, um, a program called um, Accelerated. Um, so I got a bachelor's and master's um, in five years um, and in electrical engineering. And so I got convinced to stay technical, um, and I, I finished those degrees and then went off and got a job at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab and worked there for the, that 17 years so. So you yeah. are a, a, a an electrical engineer with a master's and worked for 17 years as an engineer. Um, and yet you, you find through the duration of your, as you kind of 
see success in, in promotions with, during those 17 years, that the management piece is not something that you were drawn to, but in fact enjoyed. Yeah, so actually I didn't um, go into management because I wanted to climb the ladder or whatever. I kind of went there because I was looking for a job outside and realized my skills were so um, narrowly focused that I couldn't find a lot of opportunities. So I wanted to find a way to have more opportunities. And in that, I discovered that, hey, management will give me those more opportunities. They expect you to be broader. Um, so I applied for and got a job still at the lab doing management. And what I discovered, as you said, was that I actually enjoyed it. So that was kind of surprising, uh, helping what, people grow and, you yeah. know, um, seeing them succeed really, really um, empowers me. So that um, wasn't what I was expecting. Um, and so I kind of, you know, had a really good manager myself, which helped um, once I took on that management role and um, grew and that kind of made it hard to leave, um, you know, because I had uh, um, somebody I trusted above me. Um, but ultimately um, that, um, you know, led to the mandates and that was that wasn't too hard after that. Mm -hmm. And so you actually one of the themes often of, of business buyers, acquisition entrepreneurs is is whether or not they're drawn to managing people. Many of the target businesses that acquisition, entre acquisition entrepreneurs might look at are blue-collar businesses, meaning there's a lot of people management. Some people run toward that. Some people run away. And it sounds like earlier in your, earlier in your career, you would have run away. But as you uh, matured and got some experience managing, realized that, in fact, you liked it. And so you actually were, you were totally embraced that, um, the idea of man In fact, even wanted it in the business that you acquired. Yes. Right. Yes. Great. Okay. So, um, self-storage categories too hot, seems boring. Um, managing boxes, you like managing people. Uh, so you, are, are you at this point, have you narrowed your search criteria to like a blue collar business? What is, what does your search criteria look like? Yeah. So my search criteria, um, you know, having read, um, all the standard books, um, and, um, you know, spent time on search funder, a lot of time trying to educate myself on what, what, what is a good target and all that. I had narrowed it down to the typical service-based business, right? Um, in high school and all I did construction. So I figured I'd fit really well with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was just trying to find that service-based business where I could scale it and grow it and manage people and not have too high of capital expenditures, that kind of stuff. So that was kind of my search criteria, which ultimately, um, you know, that's what I was looking for. I, um, ultimately bought a manufacturer. So, um, you know, there I was kind of like, well, let me look for what's commutable where I currently live, um, and broaden that out and just look at all the businesses that are available, um, that would be commutable. And so, then I discovered it and I'm like, wow, this, this really, this is the business. And I told my wife, I said, I found it. And she's like, no, she read the um, teaser and said, yeah, this is it. So, and it ended up being it. So. And when, so why was her reflex to say no, because it was manufacturing rather than services? Her reflex to say no was just because that was her attitude. Every time I brought her one, I'm like, this one looks really good. <laughs> 
You know, she strikes me as one of those people who maybe where her she just says no to force you to think that much harder and, and be that much more persuasive, yeah. just to, just to like raise the bar a little bit so that you uh, are more confident in your own thought process. I love it. Yeah, she was definitely doing that. When you said commutable, so you were where were you at that point? You were you'd already done the move to West Virginia, and what was what was the radius of commutability? So my uh, radius commutability wasn't really in miles. It was in time. And I figured an hour and a half one way um, was the most that I was willing to drive. So so an hour and a half radius from where you are in West Virginia, does that get to any metro areas? Does that get to D.C. or Baltimore? Yeah, it gets basically to both, right? Okay. Does it get up to Philly? Mm, no. Does it get to Philly or Pittsburgh? No. Okay. All right. Well, still, the DMV, big area, um, including Baltimore and that even bigger. So um, that's pretty good. The um, Okay. You, you know, one of the, the other things about your story, Jordan, is that you have been blogging all the while. Uh, you've got a Substack. Of course, there will be a link to it in the show notes. I encourage people to read it. Um, uh, quick digression. Tell, tell us why you blogged through this experience. Well, so um, there was a couple of reasons I wanted to blog. Uh, first, I wanted to hold myself accountable um, for making progress. Um, and I figured if I wrote that down, that I would that would make sure I did more than had I not. Um, the second reason is I wanted to make sure that others, even though there are great um, books and stuff, they still don't get into all the nitty gritty. And so I just wanted to blog those nitty gritties to show, you know, how how an actual search um, went and maybe help somebody in the future um, with their search. Mm -hmm. um, and then third, I was looking for, you know, not having contacts in, um, you know, finance and that kind of stuff, not having an MBA and uh, backing. I was uh, thinking that I might need investors and what better way for investors to get to know me than to be able to read my journey along and follow. Um, so I wanted to, build that um, trust um, over time. As we talk, uh, there were a few of your blog posts that uh, jumped out at me that'll be, that are, well, I mean, they're all relevant to your story, of course, but a few that um, I want to, I want to um, hook in as we talk. So the first one is your approach to deal flow. So um, obviously deal flow is really the name of the game in search. Um, and you were trying to be intelligent about it, as intelligent about it as possible. So uh, you tried to get upstream on deal flow. I think that your, your blog post was something along those lines, getting up, upstream um, on deal flow. What, uh, did, what was your thinking? What was your approach? And what did you learn? August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out Oberly-Risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. So um, I guess, you know, trying to figure out how to get upflow on, on the deal stream um, um, was um, not, not simple, right? The books just talk about doing that, you know, uh, establish relationships with brokers and 
get on their short list. It, it doesn't really talk about the mechanics of how you go and do that. Um, in discussions with the search investment group, because um, I was trying to be a part of their um, program, they kind of um, hinted that what they do is use a CRM and go out to all these brokers and send out you know emails to explain the search and get on their list, basically. So I said, well, you know, when, when they weren't, when they didn't take me, I said, well, I can do this on my own. So I did just that. I collected, um, scrubbed all the websites for broker information, started compiling that, um, and then started emailing those brokers with a one pager, right? Um, which I, you know, went on search funder and got lots of help on what should I say? What shouldn't I say? That kind of stuff, um, to, to clarify that message. And, you know, ultimately what I discovered was that all of those brokers that I, that I initiated that process with, and I gave up on that process about two or three weeks into it, because all I was getting was the standard listings. Um, and those standard listings were actually like from the worst brokers. They were ones they wanted 20 times cash flow for the business and that kind of stuff. And so I decided, Jordan, hold on, hold on a second. Let me jump in. You said you scrubbed the websites. So by that, you mean going on biz by sell, seeing the, the brokers alongside listings that are in your target geography and that seem like within the industries or categories that you're interested in, and then sending this, an email to them, um, that says, you know, that has your one pager and that's basically introducing yourself and what you correct so far. Oh, well, actually, by scrubbing the websites, I mean, I went on to like IBBA and Interexo and collected all of the broker's contact information Ah, um, using okay. a web scraping. So, ah, okay. Okay. So you were just getting lists of brokers. You weren't looking yet at biz by sell and seeing who the active brokers were. Okay. And then you send out um, emails to all of these folks with... You're introducing yourself, saying what your target is, one pager about yourself. Um, and then what you find is that this isn't that productive because really you're, you're automatically put on their lists and it seems to be lists of, you know, brokers not really selling quality, not really putting out quality stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the, um, a lot of the brokers in Florida, right, are, um, they can be anything from a real estate agent, right? Um, and so I was getting a ton of calls from them wanting to do, you know, buy side, uh, um, engagements. So they wanted to help me find that business. Um, I was, and then if I was getting on a list, the list was always one where, and I still have them emailing me today, these businesses that, you know, will never sell because they're you know, wildly overpriced and you know, unrealistic. So that's, that's what I found using that process. Um, and so ultimately what I decided on was to use, to, to do, as you said, and look at the listed ones on biz by sell, find those that match like, okay, this is a, a business that I'm interested in. Let me find out more information. Um, and then, you know, as with a lot of them, you're going to look at it, you're going to realize this isn't the business for me or I don't like the hair on this one. Um, and so my goal then was to let the broker know why I didn't want to move forward on this business. 
And by doing that, I developed much better relationships with brokers. Um, and I could tell of those brokers, which ones, like if they were, you know, telling me the cash flow is a million dollars and then you get the, the SIM and it's really 200,000. Well, you know, this is a broker I don't really want to deal with because yeah. they're just inflating everything to unrealistic and it's not worth my time. So. So when, so when you went to biz by selling, you identified brokers that you wanted to reach out to more specifically rather than the IBBA scrape. Uh, how many, how big was that list? It, I assume it was a lot, much, much smaller. So, I mean, I was, when it, I was constantly looking at the listings and then reaching out to every one of those listings that I found interesting. Yeah. So, um, it was a whole lot smaller, right? Which is, um, what ultimately led me to broaden it up in, in terms of the kinds of business I was looking for um, locally. Mm -hmm. The other thing that strikes me is like, you know, one of the things, I mean, biz by sell is amazing in many ways, but it has the reputation for, you know, the very best businesses are pocket listings and are sold before they ever go public on biz by sell. Not always. I've had plenty of guests on here who, who found their business on biz by sell, but that is certainly the kind of the conventional wisdom you hear um, in the search funder circles and elsewhere. Uh, and there is a lot of truth to it. So um, is it, is it the best, uh, are the, you know, the brokers selling the listings on biz by sell, you know, are, are they the best brokers because, you know, because they haven't been able to sell their listings, you know, off market, which is, as we're told, the best, you know, those are the, where the best list, best listings and presumably best brokers are active. Sure. Maybe, maybe so. I don't know. Uh, I don't really have a, you know, um, inside knowledge on those brokers. Um, mm -hmm. What I will say is I bought my business from Biz Buy Sell mm -hmm. and the broker um, I thought was very good. So, yeah. you know, he's, he, he, he's the type that their brokerage carries one, two, three businesses tops. Um, and they, you know, price them right to sell, not to hold on to forever and try to scrape listing, you know, contacts or whatever. So, you know, that, you know, if you, if you can, you know, obviously if you're a, a buyer that's seasoned and has bought many businesses, you're going to get access to deals that other folks that aren't won't. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fair enough. And we didn't cover what your, your search criteria was other than the, 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 um, geographic constraints. What were, what financially were you looking for? Well, geographically, I was actually looking, um, all the way from Pennsylvania to Texas, kind of, um, the whole Southeast. Um, and then some, um, financially I was looking for, um, anywhere over half a million in, in EBITDA to, to um, two million, um, figuring two million would be uh, tough to finance, but right, right within my capabilities. So, um, the, that's a broad range, and yes, a two million dollar EBITDA business is uh, a big, a big bite for somebody who just read Rich Dad Poor Dad three years ago. Well, well, um, you know, I mean, that at the. Um, at the start, I actually looked at a business that was like 330K or something mm -hmm. in seller discretionary earnings or whatever. And it, and that seemed like, you know, hey, that's, that's pretty good money. Like if you can grow that and like, great. And then, 
um, once you figure out how much you're paying for financing and all that, and then all of a sudden, um, that's not very much. Um, right. And I would have made more, you know, staying at a job than doing that without all the risk and all that. So that kind of set the lower bounds. Um, I didn't really want to go down to, you know, 500 or whatever, but I wanted to stay flexible enough that there were, you know, there are more businesses on the lower end, obviously, than there are on the higher end. So, your your uh, something tells me that your conversations with SIG, with Robert Graham and Jordan Carter, uh, were influential in this thinking. Uh, I mean, a lot of people say it, but they are um, especially forceful in their argument that searchers should only be looking for you know seven hundred EBITDA or seven hundred SDE and above. Yeah, I mean, and they make, a, I think, a very compelling argument because, yeah. um, you know, there is all that risk. And if you're going to do that, you might as well um, get to the point where you're going to get rewarded for it. So, sure, you know. And also, I, you know, I, I learned this rule of thumb late, but it's, it's a great, um, just at a glance, you can look at an SDE and have it mean, be more specific, have it be more meaningful to you. Good rule of thumb is when you see SDE, just have it. And that's what you'll be left over with after servicing your debt, if you're doing kind of SBA loan with kind of standard parameters. So if you're looking at that $330,000 SDE business, really, you're only going to have, what's my math, 165 to pay yourself and reinvest in the business and, 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 and after uh, debt service. So just good, good rule of thumb for people who don't already know this, probably most listeners do, but have that SDE to... Um, to understand what you're left with after servicing your debt. Okay. Well, and Jordan, I, I didn't, uh, I either didn't understand or I missed something where you talk about your geographic constraints being an hour and a half from where you live to the entire Southeast. I missed something. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, to, to make that clear, I broadened my search. Um, my first, my, my criteria was the whole Southeast for service-based businesses. Um, and when I decided that I wanted to open up, find more businesses that were closer in terms of being able to commute. That's when I just took away and looked at all the businesses that were for sale. So whether it was a gas station or, or uh, you know, a car wash or whatever, I just looked at everything that was mm -hmm. commutable mm -hmm. um, instead of staying more narrowly focused. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So... Have have we have we kind of exhausted your your blog post about um, getting upstream on deals? That w was there. Did we cover everything? Yeah, I think so. Okay, because eventually, as we as we already know, you the deal that you found was not through any of that. As it turned out, it showed up on Biz Buy Sell. Yes. So, is there any takeaway um, from that? I mean, would you still recommend people do the final method that you arrived at, which was? looking at biz buy sell and maybe a few of the other sites seeing the brokers that are active and kind of cold outreaching to them it still still worth it would you say yeah well i say i wouldn't do cold outreach i would still inquire about their deal even right. if you're only marginally interested so you can get to know them a little better um and they'll actually pay attention to you if you're cold outreach um and they're good they're not going to pay any time they're not going to give you any time right um because they're, they're busy. They got lots of stuff to do. And you're one of the million people bugging them that, you know, yeah. probably will never close a deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
And curious, would you get on the phone with these brokers or was it all over, was it all over email that you were kind of developing relationships? I mean, I, I ended up on the phone with them, but I started out over email. And would I do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I plan um, to, um, after, you know, um, some period of time when I get um, this business um, running well and where I feel comfortable going and acquiring more businesses. So I plan to use that method. Mm -hmm. Well, you um, will have already done a deal then. So I imagine uh, a lot more doors will open to you and a lot more, you'll get a lot more calls back. Uh, there's a huge difference between somebody who hasn't ever done a deal and then somebody who has the credibility of having done one, especially if you've then been successful with the business you acquired. So that'll be That'll be fun. Okay, so tell us more about the business that you found that you immediately loved and that uh, your wife immediately loved too once she actually was willing to look at it. So um, the business is um, a metal fabrication. Um, so we manufacture stuff in metal and plastics, but um, that includes machining and welding. Um, so we build basically all kinds of different metal things. Um, and it's sort of why it fits is because in my job, I was in management over a small machine shop um, as part of one of my uh, duties. And so I kind of understood the very basics of the business. Um, you know, in that job, it was not about making money. It was about, you know, just getting stuff done um, the finance and all wasn't part of it, but nonetheless, yeah. I did have experience with that. So, um, and I like, I like building things. I like seeing things built. I'm, you know, hands-on kind of person. So that's why it fit really well. And so, um, once I, you know, decided this, you know, this was the business to go after, I, you know, did full court press and, I met with the owner as quick as I could. Um, we met in person. Um, we hit it off really well. And I, at that point, um, my wife was like, um, it was supposed to be like a two hour owner meeting and ended up being like six. And, uh, my wife was like, are you ever coming home? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> she knew right away, um, as I did, um, that this was definitely the business for me. So. Well, what a lesson in uh, um, buyer-seller chemistry, which is another theme that you hear over and over again. Uh, I mean, just last week, I was talking to a seller who sold their business, and she said, I had st stronger offers than the person I chose, but I liked the energy of the person I chose. So I was, I was willing to um, receive less money because I felt chemistry with the buyer. Um, and, and so you're, so six hours, what did you, you guys went for lunch and then lunch became a tour of the shop. How did, how does two hours become six? What did you do for those six hours? You weren't literally talking the whole time. Well, we were, we were actually here at the shop, uh, after hours, um, so that the employees didn't know. Um, yeah. and we did, um, we talked for a, a good bit of that and then we did a tour of the shop and, lots of questions and it just kept going and going and going um, because I was, you know, interested in learning more. As, uh, and, you know, by the time I left, I told both the owner and the broker that I was going to put in an offer in that I wanted to buy this business. Um, and so, 
you know, I then worked with, uh, um, within two days to put together the offer, get it in. So, so had you, did you have your LOI templates and stuff ready to go or were you kind of scrambling because you hadn't yet reached that stage in your buying process yet? No, I hadn't reached that stage. In fact, the broker provided me an LOI template. I found, you know, the ones on the Stanford um, pack mm -hmm. and, you know, tried to meld those two together and not make it too complicated. And, you know, it, it, um, I didn't end up wanting to use a lawyer for that aspect of it. Um, so I, I just took and used mostly what the broker had done. I had ended up, I ended up with two, um, one that was far more legally written that was mostly from the Stanford stuff. And I ultimately chose the less legal one that the broker was familiar with. So why did you choose that one? Cause I wanted a better chance of them accepting friction. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did you get the impression that this was going to be competitive? Um, yeah, it wasn't clear, right. Whether, um, there were other offers on the table when I put mine in, um, the, the broker kind of alluded to, there were other interested parties, um, of course. you know, vaguely. Um, <laughs> there I, never aren't you know, other interested yeah. parties. <laughs> so, um, but ultimately it ended up, um, I didn't have, uh, um, a competing bidder, um, but the business was priced right. And the, um, I, you know, felt that the seller was being honest and the, ultimately to me, that was the most important thing. Like all the shady people that I had interacted with and many other businesses I'd looked at, um, you know, where people would run literally every expense through the business. Like there were, there was one particular one where it was like, there was like $30,000 of bed, bath and beyond that was <laughs> added back. It's like, <laughs> Uh, that person was single-handedly keeping Bed Bath and Beyond in business. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> so when 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 none of that was in this deal, it felt right to me. Um, so it was very clean. Yeah. So you you did feel that um, a lot, with a lot of the Sims that you looked at that there was there was there's a lot of shadiness out there, a lot of a lot of uh, mines to avoid. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, you, know, the, you know, and maybe that's a fact of those businesses being listed on on yep. those websites is there's still the you know bad ones are hanging around right so yep exact good great point yep the two two follow-up questions about this business are more the can you tell us what some of the financials were yeah so i mean uh, um the sde was um on the order it was over 800 um and then the um, price was roughly a little over three times the SDE. So that's, um, you know, right down the lane of what I was hoping to find. What a find. That's phenomenal. And further evidence that um, not only did you buy something on Biz Buy Sell, but you've found a, a sizable kind of self-funded searcher special <laughs> right there yeah. on Biz Buy Sell. Um, the, now... What was the hair on this particular deal? What what was there to not like about it? Surely there must have been something. Well, I mean, you know, um, there's always hair, right? Um, so figuring out right. what that is. In this case, um, there really isn't a management layer, like almost 
all, I have, um, you know, nine employees and they almost work independent. Like, um, there's very little in the way of that kind of a management layer, which I would have expected, right, um, at that size of a business. So, you know, what that ultimately means is that the seller um, was doing all of that, right, which yeah. means I will have to do all that, right? And so, um, I, you know, that some people are, would run away from that and say, I just don't want to be there in the day-to-day -day buying myself a job, right? Um, but I was perfectly all right with that. So I do want to eventually um, grow to where I'm not in the day-to-day, -day, but um, I'm not in any hurry to get away from it at this point. Well, and it's not necessarily, yeah, buying the job, but it's also, I mean, this is why you buy a business that has sizable SDE because you have the resources to reinvest in, in hot making hires. Um, now that means obviously that you don't take that money out of the business, but, um, you're buying this business to grow it anyway. So, um, so let, 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 let's actually just do some quick public math here. So if it's 800 SDE, you know, following our rule of thumb, I'm not saying this is exactly how your numbers shook out, but following the rule of thumb, you actually, after your debt service have 400 left over, you want to pay yourself, let's call it between 100 and 200. So that leaves you two to 250, let's say 200 to 250 to grow the business. And that's, you know, that's certainly enough to hire at least at least one, maybe two managers, although then you're really not going to have anything left over. Um, but um, is, is that kind of how you, is, is my math at least a passing resemblance to your plan? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was how I looked at it and is how uh, um, I'm, you know, looking at it going forward. So it's, it's, it's um, the, the other hair on this deal was the um, amount of working capital, right? That's how much how much working capital do you need? Um, and being a manufacturer, um, it's not, you know, my worry was that there, there's a whole lot of capital expenditures. Um, the machines can be pretty expensive. Um, how, you know, how often do you need to buy those? And, you know, what does that cost? Well, um, you know, digging in now, um, having owned it for three months, the CapEx isn't really an issue, but the the um, what what most searchers want right is a very short um, working capital cycle, and this business is uh, not short. <laughs> ninety mm -hmm. days. Uh, um, some of the customers are net ninety. Mm -hmm. um, that's a long time to put out money right before you get it back. Yeah. So yeah, you know that part is that part is um, you know some of the hair on it. So going back to the management layer for a second. Um, a follow-up question on the numbers. What is revenue, or roughly? So 800 SDE from how much revenue? About 2.2. Okay, so a third, so so yeah, so over a third. So that's like whatever, approaching whatever, somewhere between 35 and 40%. Um, and, you know, I'm reminded of, of my episode with Ryan Doyle, who's a searcher who had kind of seven takeaways from um, seven, seven things to red flags in businesses that you're looking at uh, to be careful of as a searcher that he's learned from looking at so many deals and decide, and realizing like what the patterns emerge, what patterns emerged from the deals that he ultimately said no to. One of them was if margins are too high, like you'd be like, well, you know, how can margins be too high? Like more margin the more margin, the better. Um, 
it's it's exactly like what you found. It probably means that the owner is doing everything, and that y- if you really want to understand uh, how what you might do with this business, you should reduce that SDE because you're going to need a manager. Uh, if you if you want to you know build a, a growing asset and a, an asset that you your business that you yourself can eventually sell, um, so yeah so here you have thirty five to forty percent margins in your business. It's I mean this you know this is a perfect example of that. So um, I encourage people to listen to that uh, that episode. By the way, that was episode eighty one. Don't be tempted. Eight signs of a bad business. Eight signs, not seven. Returning to your story, Jordan. So. Um, the the other th- uh, uh, can we spend a minute on the nature of this business? I don't know anything about manufacturing. I've I've said that before when I've had on guests who have bought manufacturing or manufacturing like businesses, and uh, in fact, in a number of those cases, the folks are they say, well, it's a manufacturing business technically, but it's not really. It's more kind of fabrication. Or uh, a recent guest was like, I actually, <laughs> he said, I realized after six years of owning my business that I don't, I'm not in the manufacturing business. I'm in the e-commerce business. We do some design here, but basically the manufacturers in China, I'm not really, you know, striking an arc at all. It sounds like yours is a real deal manufacturing business, the machine shop. Am I right? Well, yeah. I mean, yes and no. We We do have some products that we make on a continuous basis. Um, but most of what we do is project based. So we have a lot of recurring customers. They come back to us over and over and over. Um, but we build different things for them. So it's not, um, there's, it's a little bit like a manufacturer and a little bit not. So the, um, a big portion of the work we do is, uh, for water treatment plants and every one of those is different. And, the um, kind of metal fabrication we do, whether it's stairs or railings or, you know, uh, grading, that kind of stuff, it's very unique to each project. So we have to go out and measure it and then manufacture it to match. So And so you're, you're distinguishing that from a manufacturing business and that a manufacturing business is producing a product at scale, and so they're just doing... They're, it's stamping out the same widget over and over and over, whereas yours is kind of custom manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a good way to mm-hmm. distinguish the two. And on this point about you recurring and reoccurring, so it sounds like yours would be kind of the classic, um, well, I was going to say reoccurring because you have clients coming back, but I'm not sure that is that is reoccurring uh, necess- technically either. But did did that give you give you pause that it was that it's project based? I mean, that's often something that um, that is is that certainly not within the sweet spot of what searchers look for project based businesses. Correct. Um, so no, because I knew some of the work was that um, reoccurring work. So we build some things like, and that portion of the revenue is on the order of 40-50% of the uh, repeat stuff. So that uh, um, I thought was a good stable base from the on the project side, um, you know, to help balance that. The project margins are higher, which help... Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, and being that the projects weren't tied to, you know, I looked at pool building businesses and, and that kind of stuff. And there, there was a COVID bump for sure in pools. Right. Um, this mm-hmm. business, you know, I was like, well, it's infrastructure. If anything, we're at the beginning of needing to replace an awful lot of infrastructure. So that project base to me seems like a good stable spot to be not necessarily like, you know, now that the pool 
um, bump is done. People are going back to work. They don't need their pools anymore. Yep. You know, um, a whole lot more stable in that regard on the economy. So, Sure. Well, the other thing um, that jumps out at me is um, the a lot of what you were buying is these relationships that you have with the with the folks at the local governments or whoever is building the water treatment facilities, and so those relationships presumably were were with this owner, this gentleman that you spent six hours with on that first meeting. So something that is is so incredibly valuable and needs to be transitioned just so are those relationships. Did that strike you as? Um, I mean, did did you recognize that, and how did you how have you managed? Yeah, I mean, so that that definitely was one of the risks, right, is can those relationships transfer? And so when working with the seller, um, I wanted to make sure that he uh, understood that that's what I um, was worried about. And when I wanted to make sure, you know, we worked on together to try to transition. And so what, what has happened is that we've gone out and met each customer um one by one together, um, and we talk them through the transition in ownership. Um, he's still um, working in the business, so we still have that um, in the business. And I think for the most part, those relationships have transferred really well. Um, we have um, we haven't had a single customer be like, "Oh, we're done," <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Um, we haven't actually seen that like trail off or anything else. It's been um, pretty constant. So, you know, we didn't tell them all on day one. Um, we did that very deliberately after months of owning the business. That way mm-hmm. you can, we could be like, yeah, this happened two months ago. You know, you still keep getting your stuff, right? So, And did did you write? that contractually into the purchase agreement that he would do that that he would um, that he would introduce you personally and and that because that's so that strikes me as so important and maybe something not to be left to you know a vague understanding or a handshake yeah i don't i don't think we wrote that specifically into the contract um we we did write in that he would be in in helping transition mm-hmm. but um, not the specifics of those relationships. So it was kind of a trust thing. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I felt like I could trust the seller. So that was what I felt pretty comfortable with that happening. So mm-hmm. it has. So. And how many customers are we talking that he's that you've gone and done site visits for the introduction? Just curious. So at this point, it's been about um, well, five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, the smaller customers, I mean, we don't, don't, don't really care, right, if they're a smaller customer. Um, so the five or six largest customers are the ones we've done so far. Okay. Jordan, let's spend just a minute on um, the business of machine shops. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, so kind of define that for us, for, for, for those who are ignorant of, of the whole world of manufacturing. What is a machine shop? It, it, it's something that you see on Biz by Sell. You see these, these types of businesses on Biz by Sell um, from time to time. I see people in Search Funder asking about them. Yeah, so uh, a machine shop typically takes metal or plastic and then removes um, parts of it to build things. So it, like, um, cuts away metal, right, um, with... Um, 
with different machines that are computer controlled. So instead of like a 3D printer that builds up, um, a machine shop takes away material to get to the finished product. So um, we we are just a machine shop. We also do fabrication and welding, and that's um, different in that it's not not all machine shops have those capabilities. And um, if you're building handrails, you're not doing that in a machine shop because it would be um, way too expensive. Nobody would be able to afford it. But when you're building handrails, there are parts that you do want machined. And so a typical fab shop would pay a machine shop to do part of their work. Um, we do both, so we're able to cross that line. So we, we do uh, that as well. And, uh, and welding fabrication is, you know, much coarser, not nearly as tight tolerances. So we're a machine shop. We can be in talking in thousands of an inch. In the weld shop, we're talking like quarter inch, right? But in a welding shop, that's where you're actually, you're, you're, you're creating something. You're building up rather than cutting away. Is that one of the you, you do also cut away um, in a in a weld shop um, as well as uh, build up. So it's uh, it's both. Okay, okay. And now that you have um, shopped for one of these and uh, and acquired one and and sat in the seat as CEO for three months, any um, anything that you might tell searchers who are looking at this category to you know what to like, not like, be careful of anything come to mind. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm loving it. I, 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 there's not been a day where I haven't been happy to come to work, which, you know, it's quite a, quite a change <laughs> from when I was an employee. So, um, you know, if you like hands-on stuff, you'll like it. You know, if you okay. don't, you probably wouldn't. Okay. Okay. Um, so this, this is a business where you really got to, yeah, uh, invest in kind of learning and understanding and, and really, um, uh, the, the, what you're actually building and stuff. This is technical and you need to be drawn to that and enjoy it and learn. I think so. Yeah. I mean, to be able to price correctly and understand the dynamics of, oh, well, you know, um, one of the, the, the things the former owner was doing and I'm doing now is figure out how to price stuff correctly, right? Um, if you price it wrong, you can end up losing money instead mm -hmm. of making money. So, mm -hmm. um, but to do that, you kind of got to understand what the dynamics of that are. So if you're, you know, given a part that they want manufactured, that's not machinable um, or extremely expensive, you got to understand, well, do they really want, does the customer really want that or do they want it to be, you know, functionally um, workable or, you know, and so understanding those, um, that aspect of the technical, you know, it's like you can't, you can't just machine out square inside corners, for example, right? Um, yet a lot of designers will put square inside corners because it's just easy. Well, does the customer really need a square inside corner? Um, and most of the time the answer is no, but, you know, Understanding those kind of aspects, I think, is is pretty important. And this is all stuff that you didn't know before. Yes, you're an engineer, so you're, you know, you're kind of you have an aptitude for this sort of thinking. But you really didn't know any of this stuff before. And what you just described, for example, is something you've learned basically in the last three months. Yes. Okay. 
Jordan, I want to close out with talking about a couple of these blog posts that I mentioned. Um, you you uh, did a, a post on day one. So tell us what your, your first day looked like. So, I mean, the first day um, we decided um, that I would come in um, after the former owner announced um, at a meeting that he had sold the business. So I came in after he'd already told everybody. Um, and, um, this, our business, we really don't have like daily meetings or whatever. It's uh, a rare event when we get together for anything, um, like that. So I came in and everybody was like dead silent. They, they looked all shocked and surprised and awful. And so it was, it was, it was quite uncomfortable, <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. you know, um, I, I gave, uh, um, uh, a short speech that said what I wanted to do, why I bought the business. Um, and essentially I got, um, okay, we'll give you a chance kind of, kind of response. And, um, then it was, you know, everybody went back to doing, like I said, they are almost all autonomous. So they went back to doing their work. And, um, that was, it was really, really strange because I wanted to be super excited and they all seemed pretty upset. So, we, we, um, you know, it took, it took a while. Um, I, you know, had to get to know them before they, um, would, you know, let me know what they thought. And, um, so it, it's been, um, it's been quite a process, but, you know, I think connecting with people is not, not too hard for me. So after, you know, after that first day, I told them all I wanted to take them to lunch, which, um, because the office has zero, like, you know, I can't, there's no offices. It's like a, a cubicle set up. So it's all yeah. open. Yeah. I wanted to, uh, um, get the take from each of them on what they wanted, you know, with their, with their job and what they wanted to see with the company, um, what they thought was wrong with it and that kind of stuff. So I took them all out to lunch individually, um, which was, you know, it, it, it cost me my waistline, but short of that, it was mm -hmm. all good because they um, really, I got so many thanks from that. Like, um, they felt that was really um, good uh, to get a free lunch and have time to actually just discuss where they wanted to go and what they wanted to do. So that was the beginning of building the rapport that I think now that I've uh, fully gained all their trust. I haven't lost any employees. Um I think everybody's uh, as happy, if not happier, than they were before. So that's great, Jordan. Congratulations. When you said that they all seem pretty upset, is it just simply because people don't like change, or was there something else? Yeah, I don't think people like change at all, um, and uh, um, none of them had a clue that it was coming. So yeah, they were all just completely shocked. Um, they probably had in their heads all kinds of, you know, it's going to be this many years before the former owner retires and that kind of stuff. And so they weren't expecting it, I guess. And the speech that you gave, what were the, what were the key points? So, I mean, I put that in my blog post, but, yeah. um, you know, it, uh, let's see, I, I, you know, wanted them to know I bought the business because of, of them, right? It was very much a, um, you know, a good business because they, or the, you know, providing the value and doing the work and 
Um, you know, I let them know. I looked at hundreds of businesses um, and decided on this one. I let them know my background and, you know, what, what that, you know, I didn't come from money. Um, mm -hmm. That I, you know, worked my whole life. I started working when I was six. So um, I let them know that. Um, I let them know my leadership style. I, you know, I don't like to micromanage. I don't like to be looking over shoulders constantly, but I do like to uh, reward people that uh, will go above and beyond and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I let them know all that. Um, and I told them what I planned to do, um, by not, you know, not changing anything in the business for 90 days or very minimally. Um, I let them know I, you know, wanted to grow the business, um, over time. But I'm, you know, not not trying to be a big company. I don't want to be huge. I just, um, you know, I think a, a lot of them really enjoy working for a small company, um, and the bureaucracy that comes with larger companies um, they don't want. So I let them know that. I let them know, you know, what my plan was for, you know, uh, how I was gonna, how I planned on trying to grow the business and. Then I let them know um, what 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 I had at stake, and that I just wanted them to give me a chance. So, what did you have at stake? Um, pretty much everything. I mean, I've I put in, like I said, I I sold my house and I used the equity um, part of that to help buy the business. I put it in my retirement money. We didn't talk about that, but I used the four hundred one k robs um, to fund the other bit, so I don't have any investors. Um, and then the SBA. So, and with, you know, as you know, uh, buying a business, the personal guarantees on everything, <laughs> yep. everything, yep. even the lease. So you know, like, you know, if the business goes down, I'm never crawling out of that hole. <laughs> so. And, and well, you, you told them at least some of that, I mean, you told them about the equity in your house, for example. Yeah. I told them that they had my, you know, uh, um, entire life savings tied up into it. So. You know, I um, I haven't heard somebody say that as their as their um, piece of their day one speech, but I, I love that. Uh, you know, I feel like it's like you don't want to mention money. Maybe is is people's kind of instinct, but I think it's really compelling uh, to say what you said because for so many searchers, this is huge. Uh, they, they are you know many many people are scraping every last nickel. Uh, to do this, and many can't do it, so they have to. They have investors as well, uh, and this is just an enormous swing for almost all of my guests. And maybe if they communicated that just you know transparently on day one, that it would um, it, that their employees would not their new employees would not only understand how serious this is for them, but it's also. Um, you know, it's a little bit of vulnerability on day one, which is, is can also kind of disarm people. So I, I, I love that you said that. Did you come up with that or ha, ha, does the literature say to mention that? Um, I, I, I don't think I had heard that um, in any of the books or anything. I, I, think, I think I felt like, you know, just letting them know what was at stake would help them um, yeah. come to understand that I wasn't um, some, you know, rich fat cat, just, you know, lording over them kind of view yep. was, the, you know, how I, how, how I viewed it. So, well, it, it sounds to me like a great day one speech, Jordan, but it sounds like it didn't, wasn't effective. I mean, at least immediately. Well, <laughs> Everyone went well, away grumpy. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, 
I won't claim that it was a smashing success of a speech, but I think it was the seeds that helped them, you know, totally. um, to gain respect for me. So, well, and I, I don't mean to to suggest that the speech was the problem. It's just maybe there's no way to give the perfect speech that will assuage people's concerns when they're kind of you know broadsided by this news news like this. Um, yeah, and so, yeah. And, and so then when you took everybody to lunch, um, did you, uh, I recall from your post, you know, a lot of that was just kind of like rapport building, getting to know them personally, rather than, you know, sitting them down at lunch and interrogating them about like what the, you know, what should be improved at the business. Um, is, does memory serve or, I mean, how much in, in these conversations, these lunches with folks, were you talking about the business versus just getting to know them personally? Most of it was trying to get them to know get to know them personally. I didn't want to, um, you know, um, press them. I didn't want them to feel like it was an interrogation or anything like yeah. that. Uh, you know, trying to understand what they thought of the business was more of um, like you know a very broad question that just wanted to get their take on, you know, why they liked or why they wanted to work there um, or not. Right? Like, you know, uh, none none of them told me they were out looking for another job, but. I suspect that several probably did entertain that, right? Um, just being that there was change. So yeah, sure. That they're still there. So they are. so far, at least, uh, you seem to be doing something right. Knock on wood. Don't want to jinx it. So Jordan, you are. You had said in your speech to everybody that you weren't going to change uh, much for ninety days. No big changes for ninety days, um, and we are right around the three month point. Um, so you're at the point where you might actually now implement some big changes. Do you have a list of things that you're going to, uh, of changes you're going to make or what? What's, where's that? Yeah. Saying? So, I mean, I, I came in with a list in my head. Um, the more I learned about the business, the more I morphed that list. Um, you know, it's a almost entirely paper business at this point. Um, you know, everything is printed and filed and, you know, checks are handwritten and mailed out. Um, so, one of the things I'm, I am changing is bringing more of that online and less of it in paper. So um, I had planned on uh, implementing CRM and that kind of stuff um, to help. Um, now, having been in the business long enough, I'm not sure that is um, worth the squeeze, you mm. know. So mm -hmm. um, my, my plans have changed since when I originally came in, but I am implementing changes now. Um, I'm not trying to make any giant abrupt changes, just incrementals, uh, incremental changes that uh, improve things. Uh, for example, we have analog phone lines and fax machines, and we don't really get any faxes, so we're we're we're, we're switching over to the digital system. Um, you know, it's not it it's already been signed, but it hasn't been scheduled yet. But you know, so we're going to be doing that where everybody will get their own phone line instead of one general number that rings, um, you know, those kind of changes are, are, are super simple. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm making changes, um, in like equipment, like, you know, we got guys in the weld shop that were sanding stuff with a, with a angle grinder, um, which wasn't very safe. And I was like, why don't we have a sander? Well, I don't know. So it's like mm. buy a sander, mm -hmm. you know, a nice stand sander that'll let them work safer that kind of stuff. So I'm making those kind of changes, but uh, I'm not trying to, you know, I, I don't, 
the systems that are in place, even though they are all in paper and all are very, very methodical and good. So it's just a matter of trying to transition those to digital. Um, and then, you know, right now there is zero marketing. So um, I am planning to implement some marketing strategy to try to get more, more business. Oh, I was, I took it to mean when you said that the implementing a CRM probably wasn't worth it, that you had identified that like new, a new sales effort or new business development actually wasn't a priority as it turned out. But now you're saying that it, that it is, I mean, if no, it is, I just it think is. it's, it, it is very much relationship based. So trying to gain those relationships versus, um, you know, cold emailing, mm. right. So, you know, the CRM won't, won't gain a lot in value if it's, you know, um, just being a part of a cold email effort um, versus, you know, meeting up with somebody. Um, so one of the strategies that I'm implementing is I'm actually going to push the former owner out into the field to uh, meet with the project supervisors uh, of our current customers more um, to get in their face more so that we're more visible. Mm-hmm. The point you made about the methodical systems, even though it's, you know, fax machine, analog phone lines, paper-based, you know, um, but but in fact, really tight, well-organized systems. I, 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 this is not the first time I've heard that, and I would caution listeners, like, just because there's paper doesn't mean it's disorganized. I think people conflate those two things. Paper means hot mess disorganized backwards. Not necessarily. It just might just mean they haven't gotten around to putting in digitizing stuff, but it still could be um, uh, really good processes, which means that don't overestimate how much optimization there is just because you see a lot of paper. Um, there's probably some to be had by digitizing all that, but maybe not as much as you think. I assume you're, when, when a big change does come, it's going to be a, a first hire starting to put in that management layer. Correct, correct that assumption if it's wrong. And if it's not wrong and it's right, what, who, what do you see your first hire being? Yeah, so I mean, I haven't, um, I haven't really been um, focused on trying to figure out who to hire first. Mm. Um, it's been um, more of trying to understand, you know, where where um, new customers that are. Um, uh, my feel is that if I can get you know um, significant work backlog built up, then um, hiring will be a lot easier. Right now. Um, you know, it's it's some somewhat being project based. Um, it's ebbs and flows, right? So there's too much work. There's not enough work. There's too much work. There's not enough yeah. work. Yeah. Um, I'd like to get it where there's always just too much work, um, so that it's easy, easy to hire. Um, you know, I I haven't really thought through management hiring. Uh, the former owner tried toyed with the idea of hiring a general manager to run everything. Um, and he was unsuccessful in doing that. Um, and you know, there's some of that alignment of incentives, right. To find the right person that's going to be interested enough that, you know, you can pay well enough to do it. You know, it's, it's not, not simple. Mm -hmm. He, did he actually hire somebody that didn't work out or he never even was able to hire somebody? Uh, He he did. uh, He had a trial. He had, um, somebody on a trial basis for like three weeks and he was like, this just ain't working. Hmm. Um, he also, um, went down the um, whole, like, you know, go to an employment agency and find somebody there. Right. And like, 
Um, tried he tried that method unsuccessfully. Um, so his solution was sell the business. <laughs> oh, that's what that's what prompted him to sell the business. Yeah, because he he wanted to he he wanted to not be involved doing everything. Right. Uh, it wasn't that it, it, oh, okay, interesting because oftentimes when it's like that, it's like the the, the owner uh, operator, usually founder is very territorial and they just want to keep everything on their plate. But he was actively trying to get it off his plate, couldn't crack that nut and was like, OK, I'm threw his hands up and as I said, he's selling. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, we all know that that um, general managers, small, you know, small business, SMB CEOs, whatever operators, whatever word you want to use for it. Um, are the bottleneck to really being an acquisition entrepreneur to, to kind of taking it to the next level uh, of your of your career as an acquisition entrepreneur and it's and it's a hard one um, I, I say from hearing from a lot of people not that I've not that I've done it myself so um, so you'll have to let us know Jordan uh, now that you are in the seat three months and you blogged about being going through the the process of acquisition entrepreneurship you listened to all the pods including this one uh, you read all the books. Um, what's, uh, what's different or surprising about, about the process from just, uh, from versus just, you know, consuming the media and content around it? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the podcast really helped me a lot, um, because you hear, um, the stories of people that actually did it. And that's, yeah. you know, a little bit different than the polished books where it's like, here's the success and, all that. So that, that really helped, you know, um, I would say that, you know, it's, it, small businesses are all unique, right? So each one's going to be a little different and, you know, just being able to, you know, roll with the punches, I think is important, but I wouldn't, you know, because I did listen to all the podcasts, including every one of yours, um, mm -hmm. I felt like I, you know, wasn't really surprised in the process. It was, you know, it was, it's it's tough. It's not you know everybody says oh well you know in the eleventh hour you're gonna have a freak out and there's that kind of stuff and you know in in essence there's a, there was something that came up and it was like oh my you know you know is this really gonna be a deal breaker <laughs> like so so I mean all those things did pretty much come to pass as they you know as as many uh, of your guests have said mm -hmm. in terms of you know trying to get a deal over the finish line. That was yeah. not, uh, not simple. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations on doing so. Um, and Jordan, I want to, I, I do want to hear just one quick thought that you had said on a pre-call about how you feel about acquisition entrepreneurship being a path for middle-class people to build wealth. Can you just share yeah, so, I mean, the audience, you know, with the audience? Part, part of the motivation I had for, going down this route besides independence, which was certainly one of it, was to be able to build uh, enough wealth in my family that um, my um, youngest, who may or may not be able to support himself, um, can have uh, a life. Um, so to do that um, in employment wasn't really um, feasible. Um, so um, when I discovered entrepreneur um, acquisition, I just, uh, you know, realized that there was a path there to build real wealth. And so by putting, you know, by by putting capital on the line, by, you know, buying a cash flowing asset, you know, I think it's possible to step out of the middle class. Um, not, you know, not there now, but I hope to be 
and I think this is the right path to do it. Um, so, you know, I think it's very doable by, you know, an average person. So you don't have to be, you know, uh, a uh, Elon Musk can come up mm -hmm. with, you know, some grand startup to step out and, and be able to build that wealth. So that's um, what, you know, why I view it as such a great path. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll put your answer there at the beginning of the interview. Splice it into the beginning of the interview. That was couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much uh, for for doing this. Congratulations on your acquisition. Um, congratulations for proving everybody wrong about Biz Buy Sell. You found your business on Biz Buy Sell in less than six. You did your search in six months. Um, and, uh, here you are, you know, we're hearing the background noise of, of the business that you now own, the machine shop that you now own. So, uh, things seem to be going in the right direction. And, uh, I will love to watch you, uh, pull yourself out of the middle class, uh, over the, over the next few years. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I love your podcast. Hey, thanks. <laughs> I love hearing that. So good stuff. Thanks, sir.